0: Good morning, Petaluma. You're listening to KPCA-LP, Petaluma, California, 103.3 FM, online at kpca.fm. You're listening to Talking with Rabbi Ted. This is Rabbi Ted Feldman. I'm the rabbi at Israel Jewish Center here in Petaluma and chair of the Petaluma Community Relations Council. And We gather here on the radio every two weeks to meet people from our community who have had an impact on the life of Petaluma. And today we have uh, two guests Uh, during our second segment. uh, We'll be speaking with Reverend Eric Dale from the United Methodist Church of Petaluma. And right here, right now, uh, is Faith Ross, uh, who is... uh, Founder of the Blacks for Community Development, been deeply involved in our community over many years, uh, involved at the Petaluma Museum, and on the coordinating committee of the Petaluma Community Relations Council. And I'm sure there's a, not, a longer list somewhere of all the things you've done over how many years in Petaluma? 40 years. 40 years in Petaluma. Jim Jim over here has uh, 40 years in Petaluma too, so you sh- we should have some kind of anniversary celebrations here for you.
1: Yeah, actually a little more than 40 years. Oh, okay. 75. Good. I moved here in 1975. Wow. Okay. And
0: wh- where'd you come from? And yeah, tell me a little bit about you before we delve into the, the stuff.
1: Okay. Well, first of all, thank you for asking me to come this morning. I really appreciate that. Um, I moved here from Oakland. I moved here in 1975 with my husband and, at that time, one son. We were um, we were actually looking for low-cost housing, if that makes sense mm-hmm. today. Today? Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> at that time, Petaluma was very affordable in uh-huh. 1975. Just to give you an example, we had put a down payment on a house in Pleasanton, And that house was $10,000 higher than the house that we bought here in uh, Petaluma. Same size, everything, but $10,000 cheaper here than there. So we decided, based upon the economics of it, that this would be a logical place to move.
0: And what did you do when you came
1: here? So when we moved to Petaluma, I was working in San Francisco. I was working for a bank. My husband was working in Berkeley at that time, and we thought about it because we were looking at moving to Pleasanton. And I just simply started calling around for Petaluma and seeing what kind of things they had here, especially for my child, who was four years old at the time, to see what kind of uh, care I could find for him and the school systems looking at the schools and things here versus going to uh, Pleasanton. And um, we just decided, okay, this is where we would make our home. And
0: what's it been like for you?
1: Well, at that time, we were both commuting. My husband eventually got a job with the city of Santa Rosa. And so he was working there, and I still commuted to Petaluma, to, not to Petaluma, but to San Francisco up until about um I would say like ninety one and ninety two when I got my first job in this area but it's it's been it's been really a good choice, i think for us as a as a family. My second son was born after we moved here, and uh we've just gotten involved in the community. It was very easy to to meet people we We were really surprised because moving to Petaluma, every time we mentioned Petaluma to somebody that we knew in Oakland, they said, where is that? Are there any black people there? And as it turned out, we moved into a community where we had four black families right within walking distance from our house already. So we were able to connect uh, with them. And you mentioned that I founded Petaluma Blacks for Community Development. Actually, that was Gloria Robinson's oh, brainchild.
0: It was her brainchild.
1: It actually. was her brainchild, and I met her. And she was the one who said, this is what I want to do. And so I said to her, okay, let's let's start working on this. And that's exactly what we did. And as we met people in the community, black people in the community, we started to share that within what she wanted to do as far as sharing black history and culture within our own community. And so we had our first meeting, and then we started to have meetings at the Old Adobe schools because that's where our, basically our children were going to school at, at the Old Adobe District.
0: So a number of years ago, when after we first met, I uh, asked you the question of why why aren't there more blacks in Petaluma? It, it seems, I'm, I'm actually very happy to hear that when you came, you found a community here. Right, And that yeah. was amazing. But then again, the numbers are not large in this community.
1: They they appear not to be growing that much, but you have to remember that Petaluma has also changed, along with everything else here. It's not the... The less expensive place to live anymore, <laughs> that and that is true. And the housing situation isn't what you know what it should be. My own children couldn't afford to to buy a house or live here in in Petaluma, and so I think that's a little part of it is the the housing. In fact, we the black group lost about four families to Sacramento mm-hmm. because when the housing you know market started to go up here. It was still affordable in that area, and so they sold their houses here, took their money, and ran. And so we lost several, you know, at least four families to that. And so, you know, you ask me why we don't have more black families here. It's just really not affordable here. Right, and uh,
0: so what was the community like uh, when you first came? How has it changed in in some of the issues regarding the black community and discrimination or... Was there were there any issues that came up, either publicly or just privately among the black community around us?
1: You know, a part of a part of us getting together. And when I say us, the black families here in Petaluma, I think that we all felt we had some of the same issues or concerns, and that was for our children because we were all, you know, twenties and thirties at that that point in time in our lives seemed like a lifetime ago uh but you know the way our children were being cared for or taken care of or being uh, treated in the schools was a real issue for us and for me it was it was it was more of an issue I think because um my my children are both black males and so i i find that boys will have a harder time in school normally than than girls a lot of times and so um, we we kept talking to each other about what the issues were. And so one of the things that we decided is that we really need to be involved in this community in order to let people know how we're feeling and, how, and the fact that we are here because we are the minority here. And so getting involved in uh, in our churches, in our schools, you know, participating in in various things at the schools. Gloria would tell you. The number of things that she has just gotten involved in, you know, from scouting to uh, the PTA to uh, the student council and all sorts of things. So uh, just getting involved in the community to make sure that our voices were heard. And then the other part of that was having our black history programs and being able to uh, share that with the community. We started in the old Adobe Schools. Then we went to Five Corners Community Center which is now the Polyclass uh cultural center. And then we eventually moved our program over to the community center as it you know, as we grew. And last year, for our fortieth anniversary, we went to the ve- Veterans Building, which you did the prayer for us at the beginning of the program. Yeah. Yeah, so
0: the uh, the organization has come a long way over these years.
1: It has grown and it's not just black families of black people that are involved in it you know through the years we've had other people come in and and help and see what we were trying to do and be willing to help us promote that you know that agenda so i
0: when i first came to town i went to a meeting uh, at the Casey center i think it was that night and uh, there were a group of people there was a group of people that's there. A,
1: that's right that was um that was a dialogue on race i remember that uh-huh. because um we every month met at different places and stuff, and we had different topics, and so the uh, the question about religion and the Jewish religion came up, and somebody said, well, Rabbi Feldman is here. Why don't we ask him to come and talk about that, to talk about the difference between being a, a, a Jewish person and the religion, and is there really a difference? And I, I thought you did a wonderful Good job. job. Well, thank you. I have no idea. I can't remember <laughs> what I said, but I'm <laughs> glad to
0: hear that I did a wonderful job. It's, um, you know, that's that's a fascinating question that you just, you know, that that Mm -hmm. was there. The difference, because there's always a gap between the ism or the, you know, Christianity and the Christian, Jews and Judaism. One's the ideal and the other is the real. Mm -hmm. And, you know, bridging that gap is the goal of community life and trying to teach and to encourage people to think or to evaluate. The teachings of our mutual religious backgrounds to be able to find meaning in it. So uh, I do remember that night, and then I've been in, met and continued with a number of those people over the years mm-hmm. uh, during my life here in Petaluma. So this is my 14th year, so it's been a while. Right. That we've yeah. been doing this. Yeah. It was a good a good occasion. Yeah. So what, for you, what what role does your religion play in your life? What what is that for you?
1: My religion is is really a big part of my my life. Uh, uh, moving to Petaluma meant that we had to give up our church in Oakland, which was a Baptist church, and my husband and I both grew up in the same Baptist church in uh, Louisiana. And so, moving moving to Oakland was a little of a change, you know, in the okay. way things were yeah. done and how it was, uh, you know, your religion you you played out in your religion. And then moving to Petaluma, finding that that perfect church that that matched. And so um, after my second son was born, I decided that um, we could no longer go to Oakland for services because it was just too far and I couldn't get two kids ready in the mornings to get out. So I went around and found a church. The first church I found was okay. But it just really didn't speak to what we needed and what we wanted. And so then we found the other church, Petaluma Christian Church, which is where we've been um, since then. So my faith really kind of dictates who I am and what what I do in life. Because in order to live out your faith, your life has to reflect that. And so that's what I want to show people, you know, in order to, to have them know that, yes, I am a Christian. And one of the things that is really important is being able to say that uh, you treat everybody the way you want to be treated. And if you don't get that respect in return, you don't retaliate. You just you just keep moving. You just keep going. And so that's what I want people to see from my life.
0: Well, if I as being not you and being on the outside of you, if I can look back over the years I have known you, that's so true about you that is so true about you. you. And uh, no matter where I have seen you and what you're doing, there's a certain peacefulness that I think your faith gives you inside that allows you to confront issues and challenges uh, with a certain degree of strength and Mm -hmm. perseverance and willingness to keep moving forward. And and a big openness to the diversity of life and of our right. community. So that, that has been great. Yeah. And uh, it's important, and especially in this day and age, in this part of the world, where number one religion is under attack frequently, and where um, we're living with a, this unsure time, where now violence, of course, in the news today, and potential violence is... is being fermented and right. all kinds of things, so we need that inner strength to be able to persevere in this world.
2: Yeah, that we do. Really we really
1: do. do. We need something that we can uh, we can hold on to because there's so much of, a, of changes and stuff that's going on. It's very world. true. So what, how, let's, let's move on to another of your interests: the uh,
0: the museum and the. Uh, where did that come in your life and how okay.
1: That fit in? okay, so we actually got together again in the museum because right. you were on the board and I, I got on the board at the museum and then I went on to be president for a little while. And so uh, the mu- uh, the museum gave me the chance to, uh, to be able to uh, share a little more of black history with the community. We, st- we had done exhibits in different places, but then we decided that, okay, we can start to do exhibits at the museum, and that's exactly what we've uh, done over the years. Not just black history exhibits, but um, I've also done a couple of cultural exhibits there and one that involved uh, the veterans and some of the, the problems and stuff they have coming back into uh, the community. And so I've enjoyed working at the museum. I don't do as much now as I have in the past, but we're still involved. We're still getting ready to do our February because February is Black History Month. And so we're getting ready to do our Black History exhibit there, and we open up Black History Month with a jazz concert. And we've done that for six years now with Dorian Bartlett, who's a, a, she plays the bass. Bartley. 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 Anyway, she is, uh, she has a group of uh, jazz players who um, who call themselves the Dorian Mode, and she has planned again this year, which would be February 1st, 2019, I guess is what the date is, for our opening ceremony, uh-huh. which is our jazz contest, our jazz concert. Okay. Wow. So... So when you put when you these exhibits, what do you want the public,
0: what's the message behind these exhibits for you?
2: Okay, so. You want the
0: public to gather when they're looking at the pictures and the,
1: what, what do you want them to know from that? Okay, so each one of the, <coughs> excuse me, each one of the exhibits <laughs> has a theme, and our theme for um, 2019, <coughs> my throat. Do some
2: water?
1: Is, um. The uh, black migration in the 20th century through today, and what we're going to be looking at, are, are trying to display is the migration of, of, of blacks from the farms to the cities in the south, and from the cities in the south through the east coast and the west coast. And with these changes, has also come the the industrial area uh, era, I should say, and how our our lives have changed also as a result of the changes and stuff and stuff. We want to display that in our our exhibit.
0: And it would be important uh, for for the people viewing this to get the message of exactly what it is you want them to understand. Is this the purpose to to have people recognize that black history is part of American history. Black
1: history is definitely and a, book. a
0: Obviously, a, a part of American history, and that this nation of ours includes a very diverse community, large community of people from differing backgrounds, and we're all part of America. You said that
1: absolutely perfectly.
2: Thank <laughs> no, you.
0: Thank you. Thank I'm you. trying to allow you Thanks. some time to drink some water because you've been uh, having a hard time there, so it's okay. Um, no, but I think that's true. I think it's really important in this anti-immigrant era here uh, so true. for us to recognize that all of these different groups and pieces, the black communities, the Italian whatever. The Japanese like, the community, the Chinese and, community have all
1: played, a part, all in, played in, a part in our history. And a lot of times we don't see that right. in um in 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 the in the in the school books and stuff our children don't get that real rich right. history of what has happened in the past and not just the 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 you know years and years ago but right now what is it that all of these different cultures are bringing you know to our communities and to our country and i i think sometimes some of us forget that right. you know they forget the part of this country we we actually all are immigrants here, except for, you know, a very few right. people, and so we forget how much of a part of that we all are. Right. Yes. Forgetting that we all we are a nation
0: of <laughs> immigrants, and uh, that gets forgotten in the current climate. That's of the right. World. And it's um, for me, and I know for you, it's it's sad. If there's a certain sadness that comes with the current. Uh, mood around things like that. Yes, and there's a, a difference between recognizing our laws and protecting our nation, and also recognizing that all of us come from somewhere else, and that makes right. up this this nation when it can be great and how it can be great. Mm-hmm. Yes, I, it's it's really an important piece. So we have to remember, of course, that the Petaluma Museum is actually the Petaluma Historical Museum. That's right. So we want people to know that there's not only the history of the black community in America, migration, etc., but also the communities here in Petaluma and the various immigrant groups that have come into our community and helped make a difference into who we are
2: today. As a result that. That's
1: very true. And uh, as a result of working at the um, museum and doing history, mm-hmm. we have found and we've displayed this several different times is the fact that blacks have been a part of this community since the 1800s. And they actually owned land and they've worked here and everything. And so a lot of times we don't see that. And we definitely don't see it in the in any of the, the history books and stuff. And so being able to bring that out, you know, when we do an exhibit is really, you know, one of the things that we enjoy doing.
0: Yeah, that um, history books, that's a whole other subject. Yeah. Oh my goodness. And how how our school history books handle different groups and experiences in the past. I know from the Jewish community's point of view for uh, many high school history books would say in the Holocaust and uh, they might talk about World War Two and six million Jews were killed, and that's it. That's one, about it. One sentence as if you know, that's, uh, okay, it's a side sidelight of it, but there were six million lives systematically lost, and the history gets changed. And, right. It's, uh, it's, it's that done that. by
1: the people who write the books, not, not necessarily, necessarily what actually happened. Right. And so yeah. it's up to us as... Um, as individuals who care about our history and want to share it, to bring that out.
0: Yeah, I lived in the South for a uh, period of my life, for about eight uh, years in Georgia. And uh, this was in the 70s. Um, things were getting better. and uh, But there, there's, it, it still felt like the Civil War was partially still happening in some ways in the community around. Mm -hmm. And uh, i like to think that our nation has gotten better and more just in recognizing the differences that are uh, are really superficial, that we're all human beings created in God's image, yet those battles have been going on for a long time.
1: Right. And I, I think that some of it, because of the migration and stuff you see, you see a lot of black, uh, the younger people moving back to the South. But still, I mean, look at the newspaper and stuff and look at what's going on with the voting and stuff and how some, you know, they're trying to keep some people from being able to vote. And it has nothing to do with anything, you know, other than um, other than color, which is which is crazy. Um Our color doesn't make us who we are. It's the person that makes us who we are. Absolutely. And,
0: um, you
1: know, uh, we may have discussed
0: at one point, but uh, NPR had this uh, photo of 16 faces uh, that they put up, and they asked people to identify what race Mm -hmm. the people Mm -hmm. were in this. And it was based on the theory that the notion of race is actually a sociological concept, not a biological concept. That's true. Right? Right. And so we created cultures around the colors uh, of our skin and uh, notions about it and prejudices and all kinds of things. And if you looked at that chart and you picked, you could probably be right maybe 25% of the time in terms of the background by looking at the faces Mm -hmm, of the people. mm -hmm. And um, it really struck me that that notion that uh, this issue of race is really just uh, something we as human beings dreamed Mm -hmm. up and have created and that we could do well to work really hard to uncreate it. Right. So, Not looking
1: uh, at the color of a person's right. skin because right. you can't all the time tell by the color of right. a person's and, skin. Um,
0: yeah. So, we can. And you you got involved in the Petaluma Community Relations Council, too. And right. with, obviously, I'm involved right. also. And, what was you know, what motivated you for that what how did that happen for you?
1: Well, that was around the time we got our new president uh-huh. and um i i just i felt like i needed i needed an outlet I needed to do something, and there were just so many organizations being formed right here in Petaluma and stuff and taking a look at some of them and i I liked the idea of the p c r c and getting involved in the community and being that catalyst that we could bring some of these organizations together, you know, and really have a voice in what what's going on here in Petaluma.
0: And I think that's our continued mission. Right. Uh, actually, our, I can plug our next meeting for November 28th when we will meet the person who is elected mayor of Petaluma mm-hmm. in the November election. So that's, right. that's coming up for us and an important part of what we're doing. Um Well, we're hoping that the Community Relations Council can continue its work and not looking. uh, I know the topic of racial discrimination has been on in our coordinating committee. We've been talking a little bit about doing some programming around it and uh, dealing with diversity issues. Do you think we should be doing
1: something around that? I I think so. That's one of the things that we've decided that we're going to do for 2019 is maybe have a conversation around that and see what Petaluma looks like in that that whole thing, just really sort of gearing it toward, you know, what is the race relationship here in Petaluma? How is it, uh, how are we doing as a community in bringing all of our cultures together? And, you know, a lot of times we talk about black history. It's not just black history. It's the other cultures that are here also.
0: Oh, yeah, the multiple cultures. I
1: think we need to include
0: that uh, in uh, in how we handle that and exactly. how we discuss it. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, Faith, you have, uh, you're integral to the, in my mind, to this community of ours in Petaluma and to the many wonderful things that are happening to try to make this a better place for ourselves and for the future generations who may live here, if they can afford to find they the housing. <laughs> That's the caveat each time. So I want to thank you very much for being with us uh, today and talking with Rabbi Ted. You are listening to KPCALP, Petaluma, California, 103.3 FM. Please join us soon for the second segment. Thank you. Welcome back to the second segment of Talking with Rabbi Ted here at KPCALP, Petaluma, California. Our guest during this second segment is Rev. Eric Dale from United Methodist Church here in Petaluma. How long have you been there?
3: Uh, A little over a year, almost a year and a half. Really? Came in July of
0: 2017.
3: Wow, wow. Yeah. Yeah by. It's amazing.
0: Said, yeah, time does go by. Well, welcome. It's great to have Thank you, you here today. Good and, to be here. Uh, introduce you to the uh, community of our thousands of listeners. There are, well, we don't know how many, but some people are listening out there. What
2: was that? Seven listeners? Oh, Jim, seven thousand. <laughs> seven thousand. There we go.
0: Seven thousand. Uh, well, it's great to have you here, and we are wanting. Uh, I am wanting our community to meet all different people here. Who are influencing people's lives and working to make a better community, and it's it's great to have you here today. Thank um, you. So, where, where 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 you come from, and how did you get here, and uh-huh. a little bit about your background, and you can even talk about horseback riding.
3: Yeah. Hey. Well, the, I, that's right. We talked a little bit about that the other day, didn't we? We did. The horseback riding. Yeah. Well, I, I'll start there since that's there. But I restarted my wife and I horseback riding. It's been I haven't did haven't done any horseback riding since maybe early college. So it's been a long time. And so um, I, I'm not as sore as I was when I started. We started just a couple of months ago. Okay. Uh, so that's a lot of been. So luck. if I want to
0: take a Gallup poll, I can call on you. Uh, hey, there you go. Yeah, we are go. good. Okay. Hey. That's good. Okay. But,
3: yeah. So, but I, I grew up in San Francisco, uh-huh. uh, born in Chicago, but uh, you know, West Coast uh, growing up. So um, San Francisco from... Uh, Gosh, second grade through high school. Graduated uh-huh. from high school in San Francisco. So that's that's really it. Um, Jim
0: wants to know what high school you went to.
3: Lowell High School. Oh, uh, uh, yeah, okay. yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting. Uh, that that might be a West Coast thing, too, or at least a Bay Area thing. That everybody asks, what high school did you go to? Maybe it's just San Francisco thing. Uh-huh. But uh, other parts of the country, people I know, they don't ask that. And they're always surprised because that's what we do. We ask what high school. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. But uh, I graduated from Lowell High School, and then it um, wound up, uh, my brother and I and a few of our friends got into the Merchant Marines, oh. uh, growing up in this, you know, as a gateway to the wow. Pacific. Uh, but so, at least my journey was attending college in between ships. Uh, it was really the way I saw it. Uh, some people might say I worked on ships while I, in between college, but for me, it was really the other way around. I uh, uh, wound up graduating from a... Chicago State University. I uh, got a degree in photography and communications and uh, wow. went on from there. Seminary uh, a few years later from Pacific School of Religion in Berkeley, California. Okay. So that, um, and so then I've been in, in ministry since um, when did I graduate in the, the early 80s. Okay. So I have been in a variety of ministry settings, the local churches, uh, campus ministry, industrial chaplain for a while. Um, so, yeah, it's been it's been a fun uh, journey. So you keep moving around. You can't hold a job
0: down or something, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, those <laughs>
3: Methodists, it's the itinerant system. <laughs> yeah, exactly.
0: You keep moving. You keep moving. Yeah. One before we move forward from your past, yeah, you had mentioned that your father was a uh, campus minister. At San Francisco State? Yeah, he was. Uh, uh-huh. he,
3: uh, he was a United Methodist pastor in the right. Northern California Nevada uh-huh. uh, annual conference here. So I, I grew up here in the area. He was at San Francisco State, oh, eight to ten years, um, his tenure there. And it was during the 60s.
0: We grew up mm. uh, grew up in San Francisco in the 60s. And that must have been quite a scene. It always has been quite a scene at San Francisco State. But, yeah. During the '60s, that must have been quite a scene there for him.
3: Yes, it, it was. It was very exciting for him. And as he, he reflected often, even during the time, but especially afterwards, it was that uh, that was really the hotbed. Uh, and people mm-hmm. from Berkeley would come over to San Francisco State to find out what what was going on and what they should be doing. Right. So it's kind of interesting to get that different kind of perspective right, uh, on right, things. But to sure. be involved and or just be part of the family and the gatherings that students would be at the house, or you know. Um, uh, my dad would take my brother and I as kids down to help with uh, the registration early in the morning be, uh, before sunrise as all the hundreds of students be lining up. And the campus ministry down there would have a table with coffee and donuts. And uh, so as kids would get to help out. So.
0: Yeah, I think I mentioned to you that I was the president of the board of a United Campus Ministries uh, univer- at a university in Florida. Yes. So here was this rabbi who was uh, president of the board of this Methodist uh, campus uh, system, and uh, it was fascinating. Uh, I was accountable to the bishop, which uh, the bishop had to deal had to deal with the rabbi. So yeah. we had a good time doing it. But it was a wonderful experience. And um, so the the church here in Petaluma, you've been there a year and a half. Tell us a little, little history of the church and you know, fill us in a little bit about that, and then we'll get to your experience yeah. here.
3: Yeah, yeah. Well, the. Um, Interesting. Uh, you gave me a, an opportunity to review the, the history of the church here, uh, but our records show that the United Methodist Church in Petaluma was the first church established in Petaluma in 1849, mm-hmm. uh, and then it turned out there was uh, they started as the first building in 1856. Uh-huh. Uh, it was at A and Fourth, uh, and, and uh, my my understanding is that um, 100 years later there was a fire. And the building we have now with corner of 5th and D uh, was built in 1941. Mm. So we've been in the present location since 1941. Um, and so it's been a while. It's uh, been a while. Uh-huh. Wow. The church has been here in this community for a long uh-huh. time now. And uh, it, it's the interesting thing, the uh, United Methodist Church, as many of the Protestant denominations in the United States have, uh, they have a history of merging and different groups forming together, and uh, so the, the United Methodist comes from different denominations, three denominations, two denominations, actually, coming together in 1968. Evangelical United Brethren and the Methodist Church in the United Methodist Church. And then in 1939, there were some other two or three sister denominations that were close cousins came together. Um, so it's an interesting history. Wow.
0: Yeah, so what, you know, I, I've always, uh, I mean, people ask me often about the Jewish community, what's the difference between this, com- you know, this branch of Judaism and that branch of Judaism. That we, we don't use quite the word denominations, but um, but I, I recognize that within Christianity, the number of denominations are at least uh, 200 in the United States, if not more. Probably at least, yeah. So what distinguishes, at least the mainline uh, denominations, what distinguishes their differences? I mean, and, uh, you know, how does, you know, what does one find in the Presbyterian church that one doesn't find in Methodist church? Yeah, I don't, that's a yeah. mysterious mystery for me. Gotcha. Well, it's a good
3: question. And it probably is to, to most people, even people in, in those uh, churches and denominations. <laughs> and, and largely, it, much of it is historical. Uh-huh. Um, and it, I think we could, Probably narrow it down to what we call well the the Latin word is ecclesiology, which is to say the s- church structure and governance. Uh-huh. Um, and broadly speaking, yeah, there can be like two camps, two groups. One would be called a congregational system, uh, and the other would be an episcopal system. The episcopal system would be like the Episcopal Church, the Anglicans, the the Methodists, where there's a bishop and the pastors are appointed mm. um, from the from hierarchy, uh, so that there's there's a um, a greater sense of the organizational structure, the organ the connectional system is what uh-huh. the, the term the Methodists use, okay. Whereas the congregational system, uh, the congregation is in charge. The congregation hires and fires, we say, uh-huh. the pastor, um, and that the, like the United Church of Christ or the Disciples of Christ Christian Church are some of those models of congregational base where they have a loose structure. They agree to work together as a denom- denomination, but the denomination cannot mandate things for the local congregation. Uh-huh. The local congregation is really In charge, making right. all the decisions and uh-huh. then agrees to work with the denomination. Whereas the Methodists and all the... A lot of the decisions are made with the denomination... And then and more, I hate to use the word mandated, but but there's a different kind of structure right. uh, and relationship uh, on that. So that that's one thing, just how the churches are organized okay. is a big difference. Um, not to get too involved in it, but another thing would be their understanding of the ministry, of who's ordained and not ordained, and, and then the the authority that a, an ordained person would have. Okay. in mean, Relationship to... The other, the laity is, is the term. Um, and, and also, then, um, how that plays out in things like uh, sacraments, uh, baptism, communion, things like that, um, and who can do what, when. Um. So, so, those are the two main differences on how the different groupings of churches came to understand who is. Um, the ordained person who can do sacraments and who can't, and how the churches are structured. So in history, there's just a variety of different ways that those have played out.
0: See, I'm... I'm, <laughs> I'm personally, I'm cynical in many ways about about some of these, these organizational books. It's, I'm not even just speaking about Christianity. Certainly, I'm speaking within the Jewish community, too, that a lot of these breakdowns are about power, and uh, the human quality of who has control, and that the different denominations. Um, in Judaism, I could break down the denominations by talking about attitudes toward how Torah got here, how the first five books of the Bible got here, our basic, our basic foundational system uh, in the history of Judaism, and, I, you know, and who has the right to interpret it, and who has the power to interpret it. And uh, I suspect it's a similar thing within Christianity to a certain thing. But I think there's, there's, it's a human... For me, religion is a human experience. God is divine, you know, <laughs> that kind of thing. And yeah. all of our churches, synagogues, mosques are divided by human lines and not by godly uh, lines of division. And uh, so that's why... Um, in terms of teachings, in terms of uh, what you expect of the individual, is Methodism different than Presbyterianism and, and Episcopalian? aside from the structural issues and, and that?
3: There's a certain element of difference, but very similar, mm-hmm. uh, as I see it and experience it and have studied it. Um, the it, it really comes, I think, down very much as you're sharing there, Ted, is that the human element of the understanding of well, what's the power relationship here or who has the authority to interpret or right. do things right. in a certain way. And uh, it's always a challenge, at least within the Christian fold, that um, uh, the idea of purity. Uh, I'm going to jump a little bit there, but um, as Jesus was always the one who, who um, said, purity is
2: not,
3: it's not divine. It's a human element. And and we don't exclude people. We include people. And I think a lot of the history of churches, Christian churches, as well as probably other religious organizations, it's like, who's in and who's out? Right. Whereas I think most of the the masters, most of the religious teachers and leaders were the ones who said, well, everybody's in. I mean, we're all God's children, are we not? Um, And and so then you have different people saying, well, but you have to do A, B, C, and D in order to be part of our crowd. Right. And so then you get to the challenges there. Yeah. And, and a human institution, um, even if we're, you know, doing it in order to, at least on paper, help us connect with the divine. It gets a challenge when you get organized and then make it an institution. And then the effort becomes to keep the institution and we all know where those things go. <laughs> they can go, and yeah,
0: I remember somebody came into my office once and uh, was asking some questions about Judaism. And I think I asked her about her, you know, what she thought truth was, you know, mm-hmm. the big question, right? And she said, "Well, it's like a castle. Some people get to live in it, and some people live outside of it. Those people who accept get to live in it." And those people who don't get to live outside it. And I, my only response to her was, "Oh, I love camping out." <laughs> you know, that was my response <laughs> to her, because yeah. I'm not coming into your castle. I have no interest in being in your castle. I have my own, yeah. my own world uh, that I want to live in. Yeah. And yeah. so that whole piece of uh, the your in or out uh, among human beings being able to create create those things. I, I don't know if you heard the first segment here, but Faith Ross, who has yeah. been very active in our community and, and uh, but is deep, a deeply faithful human being, a part of Petaluma Christian Church, and I was asking her how her faith motivates her into the world, and she said, well, it's everything inside of me. It it makes me open to everybody and to be yeah. welcoming everybody. And, you know, that's I think that's our mutual message, yes. where, even though we have our... We certainly have our particulars about how we do our rituals mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. how we organize and structure our lives as, as people, but uh, basically we're here to enhance life, not to divide
2: life.
3: Yeah, A- absolutely. And I would say that, you know, how I see the positive side, I think, of the different denominations, at least within the Christian fold and the different um, uh, orders of the Catholic, of the Roman Catholic Church, No one, no, people are all different. And we all have different ways of encountering um, the divine, uh, of finding spiritual meaning and, and uh, connection in our lives. And I like to think of the different churches and orders and whatnot being expressions that that meet the needs and the the, the desires of all the variety of people. Yeah. And so we wouldn't, we're not all the same. We wouldn't. We just by the very nature of it, there's not one way to do it. You know? Yeah. So we we find what works for us. We you know?
0: keep working on that, don't yeah. we? <laughs> yeah. I mean, we uh, here in Petaluma, as we all know, uh, um, Reverend Dale and I are in the same little small clergy group that gathers together, and um, there's there are other groups in town that are very conservative and don't share those from our perspective, or without we're with little contact. Uh, don't share that perspective of openness and to mm, the world mm, and, and yeah. acceptance of each other's faith systems. So we keep working on it. We, we keep, keep working, working on it. it. I invite them to participate with us. Um, so in in the, our local church uh, here, the United Methodist Church, we have a Fijian community. Yes. Uh, can you tell tell us a little bit about them and what what you know what they're yeah. doing and what they're up to and what it's like for you to be working with them? Oh, I would love to. Yeah. Well, it, it,
3: it's it's a great pleasure for for me personally and for our congregation to have the, the Fijian congregation uh, with us. And they're one of uh, I believe there's eight different congregations in Northern California in the different churches around that have Aegean um community as part of the uh, as part of the church. Um there there's probably um I think uh, twenty five or thirty on a regular basis. So they have their own Fijian language service on Sunday afternoons and then we gather together as one for one service uh the first Sunday of each month. Um we the two congregations gather together for for service. Um they are very active in um, some outreach efforts. They, I know they go to one of the uh, nursing homes in town on a weekly basis, bring bring a message and sing and and share with the people there. They are active with uh, the food pantry and and provide. They actually take some of the food to different couple of different places around town on a, on a weekly basis. They um, they have a, a, a Men's uh, group that's been going for a couple of years that their lay leader uh, participates in and actually is the primary leader and actually has moved to Vallejo. But then they, this group of about 20 people has grown over the last three years from three people to 20, I believe. And they go to San Francisco and work in the Tenderloin on a, a monthly basis, I believe, down, going down there. So they're very active in the larger community. Uh, as well as just uh, supporting their own the challenge of keeping how do you keep your own traditions alive when you come uh, as immigrants to the united states and yet wanting to um, move into the culture so hopefully we, we provide a way to help them with that that balance or that that transition in their
0: lives, you know. And they've come from Fiji as part of the United Method- as part of the Methodist
2: Church?
3: Yes, yes. Uh, virtually all of them ha- have come from Fiji, and yeah. there's a large uh, Methodist, uh, United Methodist um, presence in Fiji. That's probably one of the primary uh, churches there. They got it from the English, you know. They got it, it was from an the English, English colony, and, uh, and the Methodists were... Apparently, the active part of the, one of the active parts of the English coming to Fiji. Wow, yeah, that, that yeah. is that is amazing. Yeah. That is amazing. So there's and a large Methodist structure and many churches in yeah. Fiji. Yeah. yeah, and
0: I've met a few of the members of the Fijian community here and they're Very gentle souls. It would mm-hmm. seem to me that they're they're taught to you know with this great faith system they have. In fact, a couple of the of uh, my members had caretakers who yes. were from PG and they would come to our adult education classes with their the people they were helping and they would sit there and mm-hmm. sometimes ask questions absorb some of the words etc so it's been uh, for me also an honor to be able to meet with them etc yeah yeah so so what what would um, what are your goals at the church what do you what do you want to happen during your Tenure before the bishop says to you, <laughs> so pastors are moved around. Uh, at the...
3: Yeah, well, it, there, there's a there's a conversation, but it's I suppose the average has been climbing over the last many years. Average of five to seven years, probably. Uh-huh. Okay. Um, and but yeah, well, goals goals for the church. Um, we're gosh, we're we're looking at different ways that the, the congregation can be involved uh, with outreach to the community. Uh, I know we have members are. Involved with a variety of the community organizations, uh, the the food bank, COTS, Salvation Army, some of the others. Um, It's it's an older congregation, and part of the the challenge is what are some of the things that we can do uh, as a congregation that uh, is not physically challenging in the sense that we can't go up and build houses. Uh We would love to be involved with Habitat for Humanity, and in the past. uh, have been very involved, but uh, that, that's not a reality for us at, at this time. So we're looking to, to find ways we can reach out more into the community. We're looking at ways to uh, expand different, um, how should I say, artistic creative things. There's an open mic night, one, one Sunday a month. I have a bunch of musicians that show up, uh, which is great. And sometimes some, some poetry reading or storytelling. Uh, but primarily music and thinking about, okay, how can, how can we expand on that or invite more people and, and make that uh, more known? Because those who come love it, and, and it's fabulous uh, music each night, uh, once a month. So something like that, as well as then, we have a lot of um, space that we could put up artwork, you know, and have uh, things on the wall or make a space that uh, those kinds of creative things. Um, I know there's some storytelling events in town, but... Uh, it's one of the things that might happen there. We have mm-hmm. a, um, we do some Reiki healing circle on a monthly basis and finding ways that how can we work with that. So there's a few different areas that we're looking at. Um, and the, the interesting
0: thing I hear you describe those is that uh, they're about creating community and getting people in the door. Yeah. They're not the faith system or, or the rituals or the structure of the, uh, into the structure of Methodism and your uh, interpretations of Christianity, it's about giving people a place to be as community in the confines of the church to create a safe space, uh, etc. And I think we're all in the same business, yes, very, very much recognizing that faiths are under challenge uh, these days. Mm-hmm. All, you know, is there a discussion about gee, how do we get the younger people in here? Did, oh yeah, that
3: yeah. <laughs> that's there. Um, yeah, that's that's definitely part of the conversation w- within the congregation. Yeah, and it, it's a challenge. It's a challenge, I think, for all, all, for everybody. For everybody you know, and, and that there's no easy answer to right. that. It's kind of the chicken and the egg. You know, you you need the young people to attract young people, but uh, to attract young people, you need the young people. Same with families and all, right. all that. Right. So,
0: and I also believe we have an obligation to the people who are there. And to fulfill their uh, spiritual Absolutely. religious uh, needs uh, in the same way, so I think um, our work is cut out for us.
3: Yes, very much so. And 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 y- your last comment there speaks to what we need to pay attention to: is people who are already there, and uh-huh. how do we minister to that? And uh, um, part of it, I think, is how do we create uh, a uh, a dynamic. Um, celebrating community. For uh, our Sunday worship is our center of our congregation and that's the time that um, we kind of, you know, recharge our batteries and, and open ourselves to the, to the divine, the spirit, however one might talk about that. And, but it's also then, it's, as, at least as the Methodists understand it, to go out into the world then and to share the love, to share the spirit, to share, um, to put into action our faith. Right, um it's right. very strong within the Methodist tradition
0: yeah well we we need a country now where people are out there doing things for justice and yes. to recognize the values that we hold dear, truly hold dear from our faith systems from our yeah. even from our democracy, yeah, even from our country, yeah. and how we make that happen, yeah. yeah,
3: yeah, yeah, and the Methodist has always been strong on that on holding the. The peace and justice element of the gospel message of, yeah. the, of the biblical message. So that yeah,
0: yeah. I was um, I was talking with a young adult from uh, my community yesterday, and she said, "I want to do something, but uh, I want there to be more young adults there." Right. So it's exactly yeah. what you yeah. just described. They need to be there in order for others to be there, but the, the others won't be there unless they're, th- yeah. and it's it's a cyclical thing, and we keep trying to uh, package. We're It's like Madison Avenue, how we going to package <laughs> yeah. our teachings in a way that will speak to the modern mind and Very much, to the yeah. changes that have occurred, and, and where, where community is different, where friend relationships are different, mm-hmm. where technology is how people are connected. And uh the old and New Testament don't deal with that technology <laughs> right, right. they talk the the text they're talking about people who are actually communicating with each other yeah in yeah. many ways in many ways. so as we wind down our time here, um I want to just thank you so much for uh, being with us today and sharing your. Uh, your vision for your community, introducing us—or at least uh, perhaps a segment of our community—to uh, United Methodist Church and to to you, and as their pastor, and I want to wish you well in all that you are doing and continued work. And thank you for being here with us today. Well, thank you very much. And My I pleasure. want to uh, invite everybody back for in the next uh, for two weeks from today for the next se- segment of talking with Rabbi Ted. You are listening to KPCALP Petaluma, California, 103.3 FM. <laughs>
2: Of Nonviolence Radio. I'm your host, Stephanie Van Hook, and
3: I'm here in the studio with my co host, Michael Nagler. On today's show, we have an interview with the founder of Restorative Circles and a bit of a pioneer in the Western discovery of, of restorative justice, and his name is Dominique. You can find out about his work at restorativecircles.org.
0: And Michael is the one who conducted this interview, so I want to allow him to say a few words before I get it started. Michael. Yes, thank you, Stephanie. Dominic and I have been wanting to meet each other for years, and we spent a good day together, and uh, had a number of really rousing conversations. And I'm really going to be happy to share with you the, the best of them. And. I think the theme that emerges from what
2: Dominic and I were saying is how restorative practice